Let's prepare now for the ministry of God's Word. If you would, please open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. As I mentioned earlier, this is one of the proof texts in the Heidelberg Catechism on the Third Commandment regarding the use of the name of the Lord. Really going to be focusing on Colossians 3, verse 17, but for context's sake, we're going to read the whole chapter. And if you would now, please stand. Let's give visible evidence to our reverence for the written word of the living God. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Lord and our God, we do thank you for your word and its life-giving ministry to our hearts and also the way that it shapes us. It molds us more and more into the image of Christ. And this evening, our prayer request is that you would do exactly that through the ministry of your word, that you would mold us more and more into the image of Christ. We believe that you will do so because you've promised to do so, and now we expect it to happen. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. title of the sermon is Everything with Thanksgiving, and I would like to approach that subject through uh, first introducing what I think is arguably everyone's absolutely favorite subject, work. All right, maybe it's not your favorite subject. In fact, it could be among your least favorite subjects. In fact, uh, what could be a more unpopular thing to preach upon than the subject of work? Uh, Maybe taxes, I don't know, kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel there. But as I I say this a little bit playfully, it also illustrates something to me that is something of a, 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 it's quizzical to me. Why is it that we have often such negative attitudes to the idea of work? Why is it we struggle to consistently and positively 
uh, speak about work? Why do we have not only negative attitudes, uh, but often tend to be reluctant uh, to do our work as enthusiastically as we ought? Well, in some ways, this is what we're going to talk about tonight, or at least the remedy for it. But we don't want to overlook something that's pretty meaningful, that one of the reasons why, arguably, even Christians struggle with work is the effect of the fall. That when sin entered the world, in a certain sense, uh, one of the very first things cursed was work. When God said to Adam, because of his sin, that the earth would produce thorns and thistles, that by the sweat of his brow he should labor and toil. And as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it very clearly, uh, there is something vain to be found even in the work that we do in a measure of frustration. But it's not simply that. It's not simply those dynamics that affect the way that we think about work. On the other end of it, uh, sin and selfishness clearly play into the subject as well. Many people do their jobs for one narrow reason, the money. Uh, They're in it for the money in a certain sense. But what should motivate the Christian as we regard the subject of work and everything else that it is that we do? The answer is very simple, very clear from our text. It is for the glory of God, and these things are to be done with thankfulness. We'll follow the outline that you have there in your bulletin. And first, uh, give a little bit of time thinking about the resurrection as our foundation. But I do want you to note that all three points center upon the resurrection, which in many ways drives the whole sermon. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is arguably the center point of Christianity. Take it away, and the whole house of cards falls down. Remove the resurrection, and everything in the Christian Faith falls away. As J. Gresham Machen said, Christianity is an event-centered religion, and that event is not narrowly the death of Christ. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take it away, and there is no more Christianity. But Christianity, while being centered upon the resurrection for our theology, it is also the center point of the Christian life. This is really what I want to come after this evening. Uh, the, the center point of the Christian life is the resurrection. The engine that drives all of the Christian life is the resurrection. And you see that in the book of Colossians in several ways. I want to zoom out and then uh, zoom in to verse 17 very narrowly and specifically. But the resurrection is all over the book of Colossians. It is the way that the book opens up And in fact, it is the way that Paul opens up nearly all of his letters, giving thanks to God the Father, or to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When that language is used, uh, God our Father, as Paul does in Colossians 1 verse 2, we should note that this is the same language that Jesus introduced to his disciples, not simply in the context of prayer, prayer, but even more so when the resurrection happened. When he greeted or confronted Mary after the resurrection at the empty tomb, he referred to God as God our Father. The resurrection title of God is given in that context. So that when Jesus is raised from the dead, if you will, uh, there is something of a new name ascribed to God in heaven, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not simply a title. It is a distinctively resurrection-focused title. So that when Paul begins each of his letters, he often does so by not only referring to God as the one who has raised the Lord Jesus Christ, 
but he does so with an expression of thanksgiving for that resurrection that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but brings the church into true existence. It is a nickname of sorts. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a resurrection title for our great God in heaven. And the fruit of that is that because Jesus has been raised, we have been adopted. And with him, given a resurrection hope and inheritance, that what has happened to him shall happen for us. The resurrection also uh, anticipates many of the practical implications of the book. So even as you're looking at chapter 3, for instance, which is a very, uh, a very practical chapter, we're actually uh, looking at Colossians 3 now in the Wednesday evening study, and the resurrection is all over Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4, uh, Paul drills down on the fact that we are so united to Christ, we've already died and we've already been raised. It's a remarkable thing that Paul should say to people who are alive and living in Colossians that they've already died and been seated in heaven. And in a certain sense, you who are here in San Marcos, California, still breathing air, have already died and you've already been raised and seated with Christ in heaven. And when Paul talks this way, he's not stating a myth, but rather a fact that comes to us by way of our union with Christ. That Jesus died and his death was for us. That Jesus was raised and his resurrection was for us. And in union with him, uh, that bond is so strong that a Christian might say, what has happened to my Savior has happened to me. His life is my life. So as Paul puts it, Christ is your life. You have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, the resurrected Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The point is, for Paul, you can't separate the Christian life from the resurrection. They are bound together. But not only does he talk this way in verses 1 through 4, in many ways, uh, the chapter bounces back and forth through different metaphors that all center again upon the resurrection. So that when he uses the language of putting things to death, he has a flip side or another side to that coin. He not only wants us to put some things to death, he also wants to walk in a certain manner of life. So that the Christian life becomes in many ways a daily putting to death of some things and walking in life, newness of life, in other things. That language also putting to death sounds like, at least to me, the Old Testament version of holy war. Where the Christian has an enemy. And we are to put that enemy to death. But that enemy is not an it as it was in the Old Testament. It's a sin, as he describes clearly here in chapter 3. And those things ought to be put to death, that we might walk together in the newness of life. So you can see the contrast. Put this to death, but put on, or excuse me, uh, bring this to life. Similarly, he talks about putting away certain things, putting away certain sins, putting away certain behaviors. You see that in verse 8. That too sounds like something from the Old Testament, even the book of Nehemiah, where the Israelites put away their foreign wives, these things that were at that time a blemish and reproach to the people of God. But they weren't simply to put away, they were to take to themselves that which was righteous and faithful in the sight of God. The whole idea of putting off and putting on is another way of saying death and resurrection. 
One is removed, and something new takes its place. Finally, uh, this old man, new man language. The old Adam, the new Adam. The old self, the new self. Paul talks this way in many books, not simply Colossians, that we are to put the old man, the old man of sin to death, and we are to walk in the new man, uh, the new man who is Jesus, who's been raised to life, and with him comes not only justification, but also sanctification. So here's the point and the summary. The resurrection is indeed the foundation of our theology, but the resurrection is not, not only the foundation of our theology, it's also the foundation of our practice. The resurrection centers the Christian life. It grounds our orthodoxy, but it also grounds our orthopraxy. Christians live resurrection-centered lives. But before we get to our work ethic, which is really in the final point, I want to say a little bit more about our resurrected Savior, or to put it this way, the work ethic of Jesus If the resurrection is the center point of our theology, how did it factor in to the way Jesus thought about his life, his work in this world? Reread Colossians 3.17 with me. But as as I read it again, I want you to think about this question. How would this verse, how would the substance of this verse have related to Jesus or been embodied in his life? In other words, how did he fulfill it? And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, let me pause there, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything you do in word or deed in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did Jesus fulfill the substance of what we just read? And the answer, of course, is yes. Our Savior is a resurrected Savior, But he was actually first a savior who worked. Jesus worked. And we might pause and ask, with what sort of an attitude did he do his work? With what sort of a mindset? Uh, With what sort of motivation did Jesus do the work that he did? In his prayer in John 17, as he prays to the Father, he says, Father, I have finished the work that you sent me to do. Jesus saw his life not simply as a mission, but if you will, a job. He did the work that he was sent to do. Upon the cross, he says, it is finished. Mission accomplished. All the work that the Father sent the Son into the world to do, Jesus did. He did it all, and he did it well. He didn't do it half-heartedly. He didn't do it reluctantly. He didn't do it sluggishly, and he wasn't in it for the money. He was perfectly and properly motivated. Our Savior was not simply a working Savior. He was a hardworking Savior who never despised what he was called to do, who never complained about it, and he wasn't, again, simply in it for the money. Everything he did in word or deed, he did for the glory of his Father in heaven. This is one of the remarkable things about Jesus' work ethic, if we can call it that, is that He ultimately took no glory for himself, and he demanded no glory for himself. His entire life was like a mirror, constantly reflecting the glory of God, constantly uh, reflecting the glory of God, and in a certain sense, even deflecting glory away from himself, but rather to the Father in heaven. 
He wanted the Father to be glorified in everything that he said. He wanted the Father to be glorified in everything that he did. And in a manner of speaking, the entire life of Jesus might be summed up in one word, thanksgiving. Thankful to the Father. Thankful for who the Father was. Thankful for all that the Father had done. Thankful for all that the Father would do. Thankful even for the inheritance that he was yet to receive from the hand of the Father as a result of the work that Jesus would do, this inheritance that is referred to as his church. Think about how many different times along the path that Jesus walked that he stopped to give thanks to God the Father for all that the Father was doing and was yet to do. But even when he wasn't saying it, he was still thinking it. In other words, Jesus isn't thankful to the Father only when he's saying the words, thank you. Thankfulness uh, was the very posture and disposition of his heart at all times. His words mirrored his deeds, and his deeds embodied his words. He walked the talk, and he talked the walk. And for his perfectly obedient, thankful life, what was the reward that he received? You're jumping too fast. The first answer is actually uh, the reward that he received for his perfectly obedient, thankful life was the cross. Just hold on with me, because it's right. Not the reward you expected me to refer to, but in a sense, Jesus earned the right to die for us. His obedience perfectly secured him the right to be our sacrificial lamb, the one to stand in our place, His works brought him to the point of the cross because his works were always designed to lead him to the cross. He earned the right to die for us, and then he died for us. And of course he was raised from the dead. Of course he was raised from the dead. This was always the Father's plan, that when the work was finished, Jesus would not simply die, but he would be raised from the the dead. And in the resurrection, he was given, finally and consummately, his true and lasting reward, which was not the cross, but the presence of the Father. And with that comes one more thing, a glorious inheritance, which is the church. Jesus worked for the glory of the Father, and Jesus worked for the good of the church. Not long ago, Philippians 2 was preached here in the evening. I won't uh, steal uh, too much from that or take too much from that. But one of the things that Jesus receives there and is described in a certain manner in the book of Colossians as well is in an exalted name. And I do want to say uh, a few things about that, especially as it relates to Colossians 3.17, where Paul refers to the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus received a name that is above every name. In Colossians 3, that phrase, uh, the name of the Lord, is a way of referring to Jehovah from the Old Testament. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is called upon by the people of God in times of distress, opposition, and difficulty. The name of the Lord was invoked when Moses came to the people of Israel to say who it was that was about to lead them out. The name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is all over the Old Testament in connection to Yahweh Jehovah. But here, the name of the Lord is ascribed to Jesus. In the name of the Lord, 
Jesus. It's really quite beautiful, and it's nearly as subtle as it is beautiful that Paul uses this pregnant phrase, the name of the Lord, but then he adds Jesus at the end. It's a very strong way of saying Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is the Lord of the covenant. Jesus is the Savior of Israel. Jesus is the great I Am. One writer describes uh, this language as the most ubiquitous way in the Bible referring to God, the name of the Lord, over and over and over. Not simply in the Old Testament, but even in the New, but how it graduates to become the name of the Lord Jesus. As our intern said fairly well last week, God inhabits his own name. The name of the Lord is not simply an empty expression. It is a name, it is a a virtual form of action, God inhabiting his own name. Jesus is identified with the name of Jehovah in a way that puts an equal sign between himself and Jehovah. And this is Paul saying, the one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose again for us was Jehovah in the flesh. That's a remarkably high statement. A very high statement. In him, in his name, we live, we move, we have our being. And this leads us to our final point. It splashes all over our work ethic. It splashes all over our work ethic. Why? Because it frames the very way we are to think not simply about part of our life, but the way that we are to think about all of our life. Notice how verse 17 begins. He doesn't say, uh, if you happen to do this or that, but rather, whatever you do, it's a big net. What does whatever include? It includes whatever. It includes everything. It's a summary statement. It's referring to entire manner of life. Whatever you do is all that you do. Nothing is excluded from whatever you do in Colossians 3.17. Paul is describing here a mentality, something that defines us something that's at the very core and fabric of our being. And what that is, is the resurrection. And then he goes on to talk about how that is manifest in word or deed. Words are what we say. Deeds are what we do. In a certain sense, the two go together. Why? Because in many ways, it's what it means to be made in the image of God. God is a speaking God. God is an acting God. And everything that God did in word and in deed, he did for his own glory. Everything that God did in word and deed and continues to do, he even does for the good of his people. Word and deed is a way of saying your whole life. The things that flow from your mouth, the things that are embodied in your life, all of these things, Paul is saying, ought to be framed by the resurrection, guided and guarded by the resurrection. Whatever you do in word or deed, do some things, no, again, everything. It's great language. Everything we do is to be done. Everything in word or deed should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And to again highlight that Paul, even here in this very practical verse, Kent Hughes calls it arguably one of the most practical verses in the entire New Testament, even this is clearly grounded, rooted in the resurrection itself. You see it not simply in the title that we've talked about, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, those resurrection titles. But notice what he doesn't say 
What he doesn't say is do everything for the name, but rather in. And there is a difference. Doing something for God is, is, there's separation in that. But doing it in is just like he was talking about up above earlier in the chapter. Your life is hidden in Christ. It's a way of saying in union with Christ. In union with the resurrected Christ is how a Christian ought to live his life so that whatever we do in word or deed, everything is done in the name of the Lord, not simply for. In comes with power. In comes with fellowship. In comes with union. In comes with a self-consciousness that says, uh, who I am in Christ defines all that I do, every word that I say, every action that I take. In says it's guided and grounded by the resurrection itself. And not only does he use that uh, beautiful uh, choice of prepositions in the name of the Lord, it crescendos, at least in my mind, with the language of thanksgiving. It's very interesting to me how often Paul uses this language of thanksgiving in the book of Colossians. If you go up to verse 16, uh, there it is. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Where would Christian worship be without thanksgiving? What would it be? Pure duty? Just sing because you're supposed to? That's kind of a yawner. It's, it's, it's really a dud. What really drives worship? Thanksgiving. Not simply lists, but life. And that's what Paul is saying. Let your worship, your singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, let these be guided by thanksgiving. Let them be mindful of the resurrection. Let them be rooted in who we are in Christ and all that we have in him, not simply for him. That in is so strong, and that language of thankfulness. That's how he began the book, referring to our God and Father, giving thanks on behalf of the church. Notice how he puts it. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul, in a certain sense, is telling a Christian, you can't stop giving thanks. You can't stop giving thanks. And the reason why is because you're united to Christ, And you know what Jesus does in heaven? He doesn't stop giving thanks. When does he stop being thankful for the church? Never. This is why Paul not only says uh, we give thanks, we always give thanks. We unceasingly, as it's put in some translations, give thanks. He uses that language in the context of his union with Christ. And here he compels the church to think of themselves the very same way. Thanksgiving uh, is a manner of life. Thanksgiving is a way of thinking about all that we have in Christ, not simply in general, but particularly in regard to the resurrection. And when is that thankfulness most clearly seen? Well, our thankfulness toward God is most clearly seen Let me say it like this. Our thankfulness for the death and resurrection of Christ is best seen when we die to ourselves and we live to God. In a certain sense, listen to this phrase now, it's going to sound strange. In a certain sense, the Christian practices the resurrection every day. And and it's the Christian life. What do we mean by that? Every day you practice the Christian life. Excuse me. Do it again. 
Every day we practice the resurrection. Why? We die to ourselves and we live to God. And and not just once in a day. There are multiple, multiple opportunities every day to practice the resurrection as we die to ourselves and we live to God. And that's why Paul says it like this. Therefore, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks. And when and how should we do this? When and how should we give thanks? Well, his language is in whatever you're doing, in everything you're doing, in word or in deed, in all that the body does, in all that the lips say. Now, this is a really high bar. Would you agree? If I say to you, do everything that you do in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus as expression of thanksgiving, you immediately realize you don't. And if I say, say every word that you speak in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father as you do, you immediately realize you don't. And that's why it's so good to circle back and remember that the only one who perfectly does this is the one who was first raised from the dead for us. And that's the whole point. What we strive to be is what we already are. And that is in Christ. Hidden in him, righteous in him, holy in him, died with him, raised with him, giving thanks with him, giving thanks in him, living our lives in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That this applies to the area of work is so clearly and easily seen. If you don't mind jumping, I won't start preaching another sermon. But if you look down to the end of this chapter, Paul says it once more, just one last way. He's a great teacher. and He knows that some of us, especially me, can be a little bit slow and thick-headed sometimes. And so he circles back to it just once more. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, sounds very much like 317, doesn't it? Whatever you do, work lazily. Because no one's watching. Work selfishly, because after all, we're just in it for the money. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Work heartily, as for the Lord, and not from men, for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Isn't that beautiful? In everything you do, beloved, whether you're at work or studying or parenting or pastoring or whatever it is you happen to be doing, what we ought to strive after is exactly what he says here. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's not simply our work ethic that ought to be centered upon the resurrection. It's all of our life. Let's pray. Lord, you know that many of us in this room have been blessed with hardworking parents. Those who have modeled for us a willingness to work hard, to have callous hands, to to lose sleep, uh, to do the right thing because it is right uh, in their hearts and right even perhaps before you. But how much more lovely of an inheritance have we received from our Savior who did everything perfectly, not nearly motivated by caring for families, but ultimately by the glory, for the glory of his Father. 
who did everything that he did in word or deed in the name of the Lord as a constant expression of thanksgiving and faithfulness. And we would ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to think about our motivation. What is it that motivates us to do our work or study the way that we do it? For whose glory do we wake up in the morning? And with what manner of thankfulness do we lie down at night? Perhaps, O oh Lord, if we struggle to be motivated, it's because we are centered upon something other than the resurrection of our Savior. Taking that out of the picture sure does leave us with very little to be thankful for. But putting it back in gives us such beauty and color and meaning to all the things that we do. So help us to live resurrection-centered lives. Help us to do not simply things for you, but in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so it's in that great name that we pray. Amen.